0: Good morning. It is always good to be here and to be behind this pulpit. I love being behind this pulpit, and this pulpit loves me because it only gets brought out when I'm here. So, um, no, I know, I know that's not true. I know other people. <laughs> I know other people use the pulpit. Um, but yeah, it's, all, it's always good to be here. It's always good to gather with Christ's people even when uh, they're in a different body than you are. Uh, I know the people at our church are praying for you even this morning as the Word of God is being preached here. Uh, we would ask that you pray for us in return. The Lord is doing some wonderful things at our church Uh, We are seeing sinners being saved, saints being sanctified, uh, those who are professing Christ undergoing the waters of, of baptism, and we are experiencing this just amazing phenomena of unbelievers coming to our church and being so blown away by the truths that they are hearing from God's word that they're inviting other unbelievers to come. And right now, some of the best advocates of bringing people to our church are people who are trying to figure out who Christ is and whether they know him or not and it, it, my wife and I, we just had our fifth daughter, fifth child, five for five. We drew a straight. And um, she, we were at the hospital, and we were talking to the, a nurse, and she said, she knew several people who were going to our church, and so we were telling her, oh, yeah, this, you know, I, I pastor at uh, Trinity Reform Baptist Church, and, and, you know, oh, you may know so-and-so. You may know so-and-so. And she, she, we start going back and forth, and she starts talking about all these people that she knows that are being saved that are going to our church. And she goes to a mega church in town, and she looked at me and said, I did not realize that your church was that big. And I laughed, because we have like 30 members. Um, But the weight of what is going forward, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth, the power of God is being manifest and made known, and so we would appreciate your prayers that more of that would continue. That said, let's go ahead and take our copies of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter 1. We will be reading uh, verses 3 through 14 right now, uh, but our focus will be on the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, specifically verse 13 is what we'll focus on today, but I think it's helpful for us to read this this entire text. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, hear the word of God. to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. O great God in highest heaven, as we have opened up your word and we have read it, we ask that you would add your blessing not only to the reading and the preaching, but also the hearing of your word. And Father, we ask that as we discuss the Holy Spirit this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do that which the Spirit does, which is not only cause us to gaze upon Christ in all his glory, but to be conformed into his image. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Two particular things I I want to do this morning as we work through this text, and uh, they consist in looking at the work of the Spirit, as I already said in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, but specifically assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation. A lot of people have questions about whether or not they are, in fact, saved. Am I a believer, and how can I know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, well, this morning, I hope that we can expound on that as we look at an assurance that we have from this text, specifically as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you think, just by way of introduction, if you think that the Spirit is kind of an afterthought in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, kind of waiting until the tail end to come, you're mistaken. He's present very, very, very early on in the text. In fact... He's right there in verse three, and you say he's not named, and I know he's not named. He's not explicitly named, but the Holy Spirit is present in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, in three different ways. First, we have these scriptures because the Holy Spirit. He is the one who speaks truth. He is the one who moved men as they wrote Holy Scripture. So the very fact that you're reading these words, these are the words that come to you and are made possible by the Holy Spirit. So he's present right there in the text. You don't read about the Father, and you don't read about the Son in Scripture apart from the Spirit. He's the author of Scripture, indeed the primary author of Scripture. So that's the first way that he's present. In the very words themselves, we see the work of the Spirit of God being made known the second way that we see the Spirit of God in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, is in that one word, Christ. Jesus Christ, it's not Jesus' first name, last name Christ, as if he were to sign his name, what's your first name? Jesus' last name, Christ. No, Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. And when you see the word Christ, you should think of anointed one, and you have to ask yourself, what's he anointed with? And Acts chapter 10 tells us that he's anointed with the Spirit. So he's present right there, the one, with, the one who anoints the Christ, who is the anointing of Christ. Blessed be the God and, and Father of our, another word right there, our Lord Jesus Christ. How does one confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3, no one can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord except by whom? The Spirit of God. And so the Spirit is not an afterthought that kind of is tacked on here at the end in verses 13 and 14. He's present all throughout the text. Anytime you see Christ, you see the Spirit as the one who is on the Christ. Anytime you see someone saying, Our Lord, you see the work of the Spirit as believers are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And anytime you read the Bible, you're reading the words of the Spirit of God that have been given to you. That said... Let's look at verse 13, now that we've properly situated the Holy Spirit and where he is. And what I want to look at is we're going to look at this text, we're going to pull a doctrine from this text, and then we're going to apply that doctrine. So as we look at the text, we're going to break it up into two parts, an external work and an internal work, an external work and an internal work. Let's look at the external work. Verse 13, the apostle says, in him, that is Jesus Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth... The gospel of your salvation. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing that people hear the word about the Christ. He does this elsewhere. We know this from Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing. In him you also, after listening, after you have heard, heard the word of truth. The Christian religion is a religion that proclaims and declares and publishes the truth about who God is and how man can be reconciled and made right with almighty God. God makes the mystery of the faith known through the proclamation, the publication and the declaration of holy scripture and the preaching of the word about the Christ. So as Christians we are a word people. All Christians everywhere ought to be a word people. We were formed and by the word of God. We are shaped by the word of God. Christians become Christians because they have heard the word of God and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we are people who care about words. We care about language. We care about translation of Holy Scripture. We care about precision with our words because we are a speaking and hearing people. We are those who have heard, received, and then confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and call others to do the same. And that is what has happened here. This is the phenomena of Christianity. People hear the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. It goes forth. And what is it that, that goes forth? It's the message or the word of truth. Again, this is an emphasis on the fact that things are being spoken, truths are being Heard. You've heard the message, the word that is described as the word of truth. It's a true word. But it's not just that it's a true word, there are lots of true things. I'm wearing a blue blazer right now. Picked it up yesterday at the dry cleaner. If I didn't pick it up, I was going to wear a sports coat. That has absolutely no bearing on your life whatsoever. It's true. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, is not a truth like my blazer. It's something that's completely different. Can you imagine going to the doctor? You have cancer. You know, you know your time is coming to an end. You're laying there on the hospital bed. And the doctor comes in, and you look at the doctor, and you say, doctor, just tell me the truth. And he goes, okay, Drew, it is 65 degrees outside, sunny, small chance of rain. It's kind of windy. Doctor, that's not the truth that I am here to hear about. I want you to tell me about the important truths that I need to hear. I want to know about my diagnosis. I want to know if there is a cure. There are more important truths than the weather. There are more important truths than the fact that I'm wearing a blazer. There are important truths that pertain to our eternal destiny and the God who made us. It's not just that it's a word of truth, but it's that it's truth in its imminent form. It's not a trivial truth. It's the most important truths. Martyrs are made over the truths that are contained in Holy Scripture. Martyrs aren't made over blazers. Martyrs aren't made over weather. Martyrs aren't made over math. Martyrs are made because they say there's something more to this life than what is happening right now. And so I will die for these truths. These are important truths. It also speaks to the inerrancy of Scripture. This message that is proclaimed in Holy Scripture sanctified them in truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. These are true words from God. God does not stutter. God does not misspeak. God knows exactly what he's going to say. He's the almighty, all-knowing God, and he can speak a word of truth. Should you doubt that, that just shows how arrogant and proud you are because you think you can somehow communicate your words to me and say, that's not true, and you think you can speak clearly. God made you. He formed you. He shaped you. He made the mouth. He made the ear. He knows how to speak, and he knows how to speak true words. It's an imminent truth. It's an inherent truth. It's also an exclusive truth. It's exclusive it makes certain claims about who God is and who man is and who Christ is and truths that contradict these truths that are contained in scripture are just wrong the word of truth the gospel of your salvation both to the contents that are contained in it as well as its power as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 the word gospel means good news. Returning to that hospital bed, it's like the doctor coming in and saying, the cancer is gone. That's, that's good news. That's a word that you want to hear. You want to hear that your cancer is gone. You want to hear a word of pardon about your health. That's what this is. It's a word of good news. It is not a word of law. There's not a word that says do this and then you will have life. It's a word that says you can have life in Jesus Christ. Believe and then live accordingly. It's that great glorious good news that God who is the infinite holy, holy, holy God who is blessed in and of himself needing absolutely nothing, not needing to create this world nor needing to redeem anyone who has fallen. This God made a world. And he is the judge of all mankind. He is the judge of all the earth. And he's the all-knowing God who knows everything that man has done, everything that man will do, and all the sins that we commit in thought, word, and deed. This God made man, started by making one man, Adam and his wife Eve. These finite creatures fell, rebelling against God, disobeying his word, Listening to the lie of Satan. So, these finite creatures are fallen creatures because in Adam's fall sinned we all. And these finite fallen creatures are separated from God. They've become, by nature, children of wrath, hostile towards God, angry towards God. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man, taking all that is ours, assuming humanity to himself, living a perfect life that you are required to live and dying a death where he suffered the curse that we deserve to receive because as finite creatures we have rebelled against a righteous and holy, holy, holy judge. And all who come to Jesus Christ in true faith and repentance, receiving him and resting upon him alone for salvation, can be made right with this thrice holy God. All who reject this Christ will suffer suffer eternal conscious torment as God pours out his wrath on them for all eternity. But there is a way to be made right. And those who receive this Christ by faith, therefore, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. There's no greater truth. There's no greater news than the news you heard today. And if you receive that news by faith, if you have received that news by faith, these aren't new truths to you. But we're comforted over the fact that we have been saved by God. This is great news. Great truths. And as I said, these truths are exclusive They make exclusive claims, but it doesn't exclude sinners. It says, come, come without money, come without price. All manner of sinners who have committed all manner of sins can come to Jesus Christ and find him to be a perfect savior of their sins. Yes, these truths are exclusive, but we do not exclude people from coming to meet and know the savior of the world. That's the external work, that preaching of the gospel, that word of truth, that good news of salvation, and we move now to that internal work. So you've heard that. That's something outside of you, but you, having heard that, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, having believed the truth about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Having received the word about the one who is the eternal word of God, the contents of faith, and the one in whom our faith rests, we have believed in Jesus Christ. This, too, is a work of the Spirit of God. And this sealing work that he does is different than faith and comes after faith. So having believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, what is a seal? Well, kings and officials would often seal documents by, by pouring hot wax and they would have a, a signet ring that would the, indicate who they were, and they would take that ring and they would place that in the hot wax and that would indicate that this is indeed a message from the king We, we, we have this in, in our day we have notaries right, and notaries have either a stamp or a signature of some kind to authenticate what has happened, and that is what a seal is we are sealed to christ we are sealed in him who is sealed all those who believe look at ephesians chapter 4 just turn your bible over either a page or two ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption all believers have the seal and they are sealed for the day of redemption and who is the seal It is the Holy Spirit. We confess as Christians that we believe in the Holy Spirit. This one who is the Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is called the Holy Spirit. He is not called the grandson of the Father. He is not called the mother of the Son. He is the Spirit of God who is from the Father and the Son. And this one who is the Spirit is a person, as the Father is a person, and as the Spirit is a person. And Paul's inclusion of him here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is a testimony to that. We have this thrice praise that we have in this text. Look in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, after just speaking about the Father. Look then down at verse 12, to the end that we were the first to hope in Christ, after just speaking about the work of Christ, being bought with that precious blood, would be to the praise of Christ his glory. Then we come down to the end, talking about the work of the Spirit, who is the seal and is the pledge or guarantee to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is included here with the Father and the Son because he is very God of very God. He is true God. Something similar you have in Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's not of one person of the Godhead, another person of the Godhead, and a force. It's not one person of the Godhead and a, a great prophet, and then something that no one really knows about. No, this is a Trinitarian declaration. He is a person he is the triune he is the, the third person of the triune God. He is called in this text the spirit of promise. He is the one that was promised to come. We often think of Christ as the promised one, and, and that's true. that's absolutely true, but the Spirit is also promise to us in Holy Scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll see just a, a brief glimpse of this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Very familiar text. Actually, we'll begin in verse 1. We see the promise of the Messiah. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. There, there's the promised one, the Messiah. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Who? The one we just talked about, the promised one that's coming. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so he is promised from old. He is promised to be resting upon the one who is the promised one to come. Turn just a little bit further in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. And there's a a promise of the Spirit coming, being poured out. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. There's a promise of the Spirit not only resting on the Messiah. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 44. There's a promise of the Spirit resting upon the Messiah, but there's also a promise that the Spirit will be poured out. Isaiah chapter 44 speaks likewise. Verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and the streams on dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. And as you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14, you see people doing what? Crying out and saying, this is our Lord. This is our Father. We are His and He is ours. The promise from of old. but There's also a specific promise from the Father. A specific promise from the Father. Turn to the book of Luke, the third gospel. The very end, the 24th chapter. As you know, Luke was written by Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts. So you have the, the prequel and the sequel. We get to the end of the prequel in Luke chapter 24, and then we're going to turn to Acts chapter 1 and see right where Luke picks up. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 49, as we continue looking at the Spirit. And the Word of God says, and behold, this is Jesus speaking, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here we have that the promise of the Father is coming. What is that promise of the Father? We'll go ahead and just turn to the book of Acts. And Acts is going to pick up right where Luke le- left off. Right there in the beginning. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 2.33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. So The Spirit of God was promised from long ago. The Spirit of God was promised from the Father. And the Spirit of God was also promised from the Son. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus Christ calls people to come to him. This is at the end of a feast. And as he calls all people to come to him, what does Jesus Christ promise to do? All those things that we read in Isaiah. He's going to pour forth the Spirit of God as water on dry ground. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so here we see that the Spirit of God was promised from of old. He's the promise of the Father, and the Son promises to send forth the Spirit. For this reason, he is called the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. So we've looked at that external work, the preaching of the Word of God, that message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and that internal work, having believed you were sealed. Now we want to pull a doctrine from this text, and that doctrine is this. The Holy Spirit is the seal that assures all believers that they belong to God. The Holy Spirit is the seal that assures all believers that they belong to God. There are three kinds of assurance a believer can have that they are in Christ Jesus and they will be saved from the coming day of wrath. The first assurance is, Is belief in the promises of God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Think of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? What was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So we have something that's from God, it's a promise and it's outside of us. This promise doesn't exist inside of us, but we have God holding forth a promise. If you come to Jesus Christ, you will find Jesus Christ to be a perfect Savior of your sins. So then you ask the question, have I come to Jesus Christ? Do I believe in him by faith? If The answer is yes. Then you're saved from your sins, and that's one assurance of salvation. Another assurance of salvation is the evidences of graces that come in our life, we have been united to Jesus Christ. Look at all the times in Ephesians 1, to 3-14 that the Apostle Paul says, in him we are in Jesus Christ like branches are in a vine, John chapter 15. And those that are in the vine, those that are in Jesus Christ, what do they do? Bear much abiding fruit. So those who are in Christ are conformed into the image of Christ. So you have the promise of God, which is from God and outside of us. And then you have the fruits of grace in our life, the evidence of grace, that is inside of us. And it comes from us. It's the fruit that we have. It's the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But there's a a, a third assurance that is often overlooked. And that is the work of the Spirit, or the presence of the Spirit, inside of us. This is internal to us. But it is also from God. This is God, the Holy Spirit, as the seal on believers that they are surely saved. We have the promises of God and the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. These two assurances are unchanging. God's promises hold fast. When you believe, you're sealed with the Spirit. That's unchanging. You don't have more of a sealing or less of a sealing. You believe, you're sealed. Case closed. Our fruit, on the other hand, grows and fades. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been a believer for longer than 10 minutes, you know that to be true. There are times when we know that we are in communion with the triune God, and there are other times where we feel distant. So the the fruit that comes from inside of us, that that grows and and, and fades. And sometimes it really doesn't grow and fade. Sometimes it's just our recognition of it. Sometimes we think, man, I'm doing so great. Maybe. Could just be that you don't realize how sinful you are. You don't know the sinfulness of sin. You don't realize how self-deceived you are. Sometimes as you grow in holiness, you think, man, when I thought I was (laughs) living really holy back then, I did not know what I was doing. Sometimes even that discouragement that we feel as we look back on our life and see how little we've progressed is also a sign of holiness. Because we see more and more how sinful our sin is, and we learn to hate that more. But that, but that grows and fades. The promises of God are unchanging and sure. The seal of the Spirit in our life is unchanging and sure. And so believers ought to have great assurance because they have the seal of the Spirit upon them, so the, our, our assurance of salvation is thoroughly Trinitarian. Turn to Paul's other writings in second Corinthians chapter one. And you'll see that Paul says a lot of the same things here in Second Corinthians chapter one that he says in Ephesians chapter one, Second Corinthians chapter one, verses 21 through 22. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed is of God. This is the Father establishing us in the Son, the Christ, the anointed one, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And so here you have Paul talking about anointing with the Spirit, the pledge of the Spirit, and the seal of the Spirit. We are sealed by the Father, to the Son, with the Spirit of God. This is a Trinitarian work. The Father is the one who seals us. He seals us to who? The Son. In John chapter 6, Jesus it, it refers to Jesus and it says that the Father has set his seal on the Son. So the Father doesn't just seal us, the Father sealed the Son. What did he seal the Son with? The Holy Spirit. This happened at his baptism. And the father says, this, this one is my beloved son. He's mine. I've authenticated him as mine. In whom I am well pleased. I've authenticated him and he has my approval. Hear this one speak. The father has set his seal upon the son. And what is the seal of the father upon the son? It is none other than the spirit of God. The same father who sealed the son with the Spirit, seals believers to that Son with that same seal, the Spirit of God. And so what's that mean? Well, the seals have many purposes. And one of the purposes that I've already indicated is to authenticate something. You have something signed by a notary, you can go and you can hold that paper up and say, ah, see, this is authentic. It was signed by a notary. It has a seal on it. The Spirit of God authenticates that we are gods. It doesn't just authenticate that we belong to God. It also shows approval. The Son was not merely authenticated by the Father. He's also the Son of Delight. So this is my Son, authentication, in whom I am well pleased, approval. Beloved, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that God says, you are mine, my Spirit is upon you. Not only that, I approve of you because of the work of Jesus Christ, the one to whom I set my seal, and we're protected, sealed for the day of redemption. So that's our doctrine. Let's apply this to our life. The first application is this, you need to discern the presence of the seal in your life. I mean, if if everything that I said is true today, or at least the, the bulk of it's true, then You need to walk out of here today making sure you have the seal of God. How do you know that you have the seal of God? I'm going to tell you exactly how you know. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If the answer is yes, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. It's that simple. The Spirit of God has been, you've been sealed to the Son with the Spirit by the Father. And that internal presence of the Spirit in your life is there. And beloved, you are secure. The end. What what a great confidence that should give us in the Holy Spirit. I believed in the message. Am I saved? Yes. The promise of God holds true. It's unchanging. And not only yes, God promises that if you believe, sealed to the Son with the Spirit. What a joy. If you're here today, and you do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you have no authentication that you belong to God. If you have no authentication that you belong to God, you have no approval of God. God does not have any approval over you. And if God does not have any approval of you, then you have no protection. And what does that mean? That means you have no protection from God. That's what that means. It means that God will not protect you from his own wrath. Just as people in the days of Noah who were outside of the ark, had no protection from the flood waters that God sent. So also on the day of judgment will those who do not believe and do not have the authentication and do not have the approval in the Son, they will not be protected from the wrath of God. So what do you need to do to be authenticated, approved, and protected by the Father in the Son? You need the Spirit. How do you get the Spirit? You believe in the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's the first application. The second is trust the infallible nature of the seal. Trust the infallible nature of the seal. There are two, there's th- three other major instances of seals in Scripture. Two are of great importance to us one is in Daniel chapter 6, and the other is in Matthew chapter 27. In both instances, you have men put into something, and in both instances, you have a stone rolled over that something. And in both instances, you expect that if that stone was rolled away, the person that was inside there would be what? Dead. You have Daniel in the lion's den, and you have Jesus Christ in the tomb. And guess what? Darius, seal over David. Pilate, seal over Christ's tomb. Both seals broken. Both men alive. The assurance of our seal comes from the triune God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, breaking Pilate's seal. And because that seal is broken, we know that we will follow Jesus Christ, not just into death, but into resurrection life with him. Trust in the infallible nature of the seal. Third, differentiate between the seal as witness and the witnesses of the seal. Differentiate between the seal as witness and the witnesses of the seal. That sounds a little complicated. Let me explain. Let's go back to a notary. You go to the notary. Okay? You have your paper. The notary puts his seal on that paper. What else do you have to have? Witnesses. And what do those witnesses testify to? The presence of the seal. Are the witnesses the seal? No. They testify to the seal. If there's no seal... And the witnesses are kind of useless. What are they witnessing to? So you have the difference between the witnesses to the seal and the seal itself, which functions as a witness. So we differentiate between the Spirit of God, who is the seal, and those other things that witness to the presence of the seal in our life. That goes back to the evidences of graces that we have in our life. And so it would be wrong for you today to hear this and walk out and try to somehow mystically detect the seal apart from looking at the work of God in your life. How do you know that God exists? You know He exists by His works. He has made Himself known, Romans chapter 1. How do you know the Spirit of God dwells in you? He makes Himself known. How? The fruit of the Spirit. But those are witnesses to the seal, they're not the seal itself. So we have to differentiate between those things because again, sometimes the fruit will be high, sometimes it will be low, but the seal is unchanging. So you need to ask yourself, do you believe in the promises of God? If you do, you're sealed, you're secure. Look for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But this isn't the emphasis of the text. It's also not the emphasis of the sermon. The emphasis is do you believe in Christ, then you've been sealed by the Spirit of God. That comes with witnesses, but the most important one is the presence of the Spirit in your life. Lastly, rejoice in the good news. This is the good news of your salvation. This is that eminent truth, the fact that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, the Father who set his seal on the Son has sealed you to the Son. The Father said, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." We respond, John 3:33, setting our seal to the son, saying, "This one is the beloved son." We say of the son what the Father says of the son. And we say, "This one is the son in whom I am well pleased." And that has a twofold meaning. One is that in Jesus Christ God is pleased with me we sang of the Lamb who is our righteousness. That perfect righteousness that God requires for you to be made right with Him, Christ procured that for believers. That curse that you were supposed to ha- bear on your own body, in your own soul, Christ bore that for believers. That's good news. So we say, "In this is the beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I am God is pleased with me in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Jesus Christ, God is not pleased with you. But if you're in Jesus Christ, the Father loves you as he loves the Son. Not only that, there's a second meaning, in whom I am well pleased. We look at this one and we say, I am pleased in this one. I delight in this one. I am the bride. This is my bridegroom. And I adore him in all his beauty, for he is my Savior. This is that gospel of good news. And so the proper response to it is to rejoice, just like you do when you hear any other good news, in great exaltation. You didn't do the news. You don't live the news. You hear the news, and you rejoice over the great news. We didn't purchase salvation. We don't do salvation. We receive the salvation that Christ accomplished for us by faith, and we rejoice in that good news. Let us pray. Father in heaven, We ask you to forgive us, for we often neglect the Spirit. If there's a person in the Godhead that has more misunderstanding and more confusion surrounding him and is more maligned in our day, it may just be the Spirit of God. And because of that, we often neglect him. And yet, Father, you have promised that there is an infallible way that we can know that we have assurance, and that is with none other than the Spirit of God being sealed to the Son so, Father, we pray that this would cause us to yearn to know the Spirit of God more and that we would properly discern what that means. To know the Spirit more is to know the one to whom the Spirit points to, to be conformed into the one whom the Spirit conforms us into His image, the Son, to love the one that the Spirit sheds the light on, to read the word that the Spirit gave us and to rejoice in the fact that this Spirit opened up our eyes, that we would see Christ And not only did he open our eyes, and upon opening our eyes, we saw Christ and we believed, but then is our seal saying, you are approved and authenticated and protected. May we love the Spirit, Lord, and do so by loving the Christ more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.